Let's pray first and ask the Lord to, uh, to, to open up our hearts to the scripture today. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would do a work in our lives, that as we read Ephesians, that your love and your grace that is so apparent in Paul's words would not just be words, but they would come to life. They would speak to our hearts. God, they would tell us what to do, how to change, how to become more like Jesus. God, we admit that we are led by your scripture. We are led by the authority of the word of God, and we want to uh, walk alongside uh, what Jesus did. And we want that to be a reality in our life. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Verse 1, it says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Good morning, church. Welcome. We've got good news for you today. We're going to stop there for a moment to talk about spiritual death just for a second. You know, Paul uses very dramatic language here to describe what life is like apart from God. We are dead. We're spiritually dead. I mean, you can't get any lower than dead. Dead is dead, church, okay? Nothing comes out of the grave unless God himself resurrects it out of the grave. You know, our family, uh, my wife and I, we are the worst at keeping fish alive. Pet fish. We are the worst at keeping fish. We can't even keep the most durable fish alive in our tank. I mean, we constantly check the water temperature. We check the pH. We don't overfeed them. I know I'm going to be getting emails like, hey, pastor, here's how you keep a fish alive. Don't email me. We got rid of the tank. I don't care anymore, okay? Because we're the worst. And for a while, we just kept going to Petco, and we'd buy new fish. I called them. I I would say, babe, you're going to bring a new pet into our death tank? Don't bring any more fish home. They just die. But eventually, you know, we, we'd bring these new fish into our death tank, and, and eventually we'd always wake up to find a fish uh, floating upside down or stuck in the, in the filter. Maybe you could turn my mic down a bit. I, I, feel, a little, I feel a little big right now. <laughs> we'd always find a, a fish floating upside down or stuck to the filter. And here's, here's the thing. We could have left the fish in there just floating upside down. We could have watched it float around and pretended like it was alive, right? But it has no meaning or purpose at that point, right? Do you get what I'm saying? Like, dead is dead. The fish is dead. It's gone, all right? But is life apart from God really that bad? Come on, Paul. I mean, is life apart from God really spiritual death? Is Paul saying that we're just dead fish floating around in the tank? Are we so degraded? Aren't there lots of good and ethical people out there who don't fit this description? Come on, has anybody else asked these questions before? You know, Paul is not denying the value of creation or that people were created in the image of God. Every person is still valuable, and they're still valuable to God, and they bear the image of God at some level. But Paul is making a stark contrast between the desperation of humanity without God and the privilege that humanity shares with God. In our Good News series, we, uh, that we did a couple months ago around Easter time, I spoke about the good news and the bad news. And when we talked about the bad news, I mentioned that the bad news is that humanity has been corrupted by sin and has made itself 
an enemy of God, and there's nothing we can do about it. We're completely lost, completely helpless. You know, sin is a cringy word today. Sin means to miss the mark. It's the act of choosing our own way and leaving God out of the picture. That's what sin is. And understanding our complete deprivation is the beginning of our salvation. Many people believe that they're good enough. That they're good enough. I'm a good person. I think that when I die and I go to heaven, the scales are going to tip in my favor. I've done more good things than bad things. They believe that they're good enough for heaven, but it's because they're using the wrong scale. They measure themselves against other people. They look at the people around them. They go, well, at least I didn't do that. At least I'm not that. At least I didn't sin that way. But the Bible says that God will judge people according to his righteousness. And he is without fault. We have to use his scale. Now, if you can't see just how dead humanity is without God, just look at the evil in our society. Look around in our world, read the news, our suicide rate, the problems caused by escaping to drugs and alcohol, the fact that over a billion people live in dire poverty and and that war and terrorism afflict the planet. You see, death haunts us all and is all of our destiny. It is the ultimate statistic. Did you know that 100% of people are going to die? The ultimate statistic. And considering this, What Paul describes as a living death, that we are spiritually dead, it actually seems like a soft description of where we really are. Why does our world look so broken even after the resurrection? Why does materialism have such a deep grip on modern society? How do needs become cravings and how does sexual practice become so distorted in our world? Christians today, they like to think of following Jesus as a journey or a lifestyle. But our spiritual ancestors had a very different perspective about following Jesus. They saw it as war. They described following Jesus as warfare. And the book of Ephesians in particular uses many military metaphors, especially in chapter 6, as Paul describes the armor of God and the spiritual forces that we war against. This is what he says in verse 12 of chapter 6. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. He is very aware that we are in a war, that we are in a battle for our lives. Not only did our spiritual forefathers see Jesus as warfare, they recognized three distinct enemies of our soul. And these three enemies are this, and Paul mentions them in what we just read. The three enemies of our soul are, number one, the devil, number two, the flesh, and number three, the world. And these three things, they create an anti-trinity that wreaks havoc on the world. We're not going to focus too much on these enemies of the soul, because I want to get to the really good part of this passage, the, the main point of this passage. But I want to talk just a little bit about these three enemies of the soul, so that we're aware what kind of war we're in. When we talk about warfare, we, we typically imagine saving Private Ryan or Braveheart. Come on, any war movie fans out there? Okay, yeah, some, some of you guys. And these are examples of overt warfare, where, where two sides are equal and opposite, and only one side is going to win. And, and this is not how spiritual warfare works, because here's the reality. God has already won, and it is not an equal contest. 
God is far more superior, and the battle is already over. This is what Paul says in Colossians 2.15, speaking about Jesus. He says, he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He already put the enemy to shame. He triumphed over them. The war is won. It is over. And the devil does not operate so much overtly now these days. He operates covertly with lies and deceptive ideas. And so instead of picturing the beaches of Normandy, think of a hacker that's, that's held up in a room with a computer. That is how the enemy works. And the, in his book, uh, John Mark Comer, he has a book called Live No Lies. If you haven't read this book, uh, I encourage you to read it. It is one of the most impactful books on today's. Uh, it's really a book about the three enemies of your soul and spiritual warfare, but it is profound and will help shape uh, your ideas about the enemy and what kind of war we're in. But in his book, he describes how these three things all work together for our, for our destruction. So uh, this is a quote from his book. Uh, it starts with deceptive ideas, which is, comes from the devil, that play to disordered desires. That is his definition for the flesh, disordered desires. So deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society, which is the world around us. There's the three enemies of your souls and how they work together. It begins with a deceptive idea that comes from the enemy that play to the disordered desires of our flesh that are normalized in a sinful society in the world around us. Let's talk about the devil just briefly. Paul describes the devil in verse 2 as the prince of the power of the air. And Jesus described the devil in John when speaking to the Pharisees. This is harsh. Uh, I would not want Jesus to be saying this over me. But this is what he says to the Pharisees in John eight forty four. He said, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Whew. The devil is not a myth. He's not a fairy tale story. He is real, and he is the liar. He is a liar, the author of deceptive ideas. The first lie that he told to Eve was what led to humanity being separated from God. The first lie that he ever told is he came to Eve and he said, you surely won't die. God said, if you eat of this fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And the devil comes and he says, no, you won't die. God, you will become like God. God is keeping something from you. He's hiding his goodness from you. You've got to reach out and take it yourself. He lied to the first humans. Before you followed Jesus, Paul says, you followed the devil, the prince and power of the air. Did you know you're being discipled no matter what? You are being, you, we are all, we, we call discipleship spiritual formation. It's the, it's the process of growing into the maturity to look more and more like Jesus. And according to scripture, you are being discipled by either Jesus, by his spirit, looking more and more like Jesus, and you're developing in spiritual maturity, or you are walking away and being discipled by the ways of the world, following the prince and power of the air. There is no in-between. You are either a child of the world or you are a child of God. You are all being discipled. We are all being discipled by something and someone. And Paul says, this is who you were. Before God, you followed the prince in the power of the air. 
Let's talk about the flesh. In verse 3, he says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The flesh isn't referring to our physical skin. It's the sinful cravings that that, uh, we have to distort the good things that God made into objects of our own worship. God makes good things for us. And we take those things and we distort them because of the cravings of our flesh and we make them into sinful things. John Mark Comer describes the flesh as disordered desires, like I said before. Sex and food and money. All these things alone are not evil. They can even, they're even supposed to be used for good. God made them to be used as acts of worship. But when we believe the lies of the devil, our flesh disorders these desires. And life becomes a self-centered pursuit of these things in order to fulfill our own selfish cravings. We disorder these things. Before God, Paul says that we all gave in to the cravings and the passions of our flesh without discipline. And by the way, this is why fasting is so important in Scripture. Because it denies your body of its cravings, and it trains your mind and your body to submit to your spirit. Fasting is an opportunity not only to spend more time in the presence of God and devote uh, time to Him and His presence, but it's also a time to deny your flesh of the desires it wants and to tell your body and your mind, you will submit to my spirit. You will submit to, to what God is doing in, in me. I want my body and my mind to be used as acts of worship to God, and so I put them under submission to my spirit. I, and as Paul says, I beat my body and make it my slave. I, I make my body submit. The third thing is the world, the third enemy of our soul. Paul says that we once followed the course of this world, and he's speaking about a culture that normalizes disordered desires. When deceptive ideas are widespread, and people give in to the passions of their flesh, then sin is normalized and becomes a part of the world's culture. Suddenly, the person who denies their flesh and swims against the current is considered strange at best and oppressive at worst. Right? Don't tell me what to do. Right? You live your life, I'll live mine. But don't push your truth onto me. Don't give me, don't give me that. Let me, let me live how I want to live. And we're considered, if we swim against the current, if we, if we oppose the desires of our flesh, if we say no, we're considered sometimes oppressive to other people. There's lots of examples of this in our life. Divorce, infidelity, alcoholism, pornography. But let's talk about alcoholism for a moment. Nobody wakes up one moment and decides to be an alcoholic. I'm just going to be an alcoholic today. No, it begins with a deceptive idea, something that sounds like this. And it sounds like your thoughts. But it's a deceptive idea that might say, I deserve something to drink because I've had a long day. Or maybe I need something to help numb the pain. I can't take this. And I need some, something to help numb the pain. Or, or maybe the idea is people think I'm fun when I drink. And, and they like me more. I'm accepted by them. And this deceptive idea is confirmed by the desire of your flesh to numb or be accepted by the group. Your flesh wants that. It desires that thing. And finally, the world around us, it affirms our drinking because it is socially acceptable and it's even fun and cool. And that is how the three enemies of our soul, they take things that God has created and they distort them and they use them against us. Is alcohol itself evil? I don't think so. 
Some of you might disagree with me, but I don't believe so. Jesus himself turned water into wine. Wine was used in Jewish celebrations and special holidays. It was a very normal part of life. And Jesus even used wine in an act of worship and remembrance at the Lord's Supper. And we do this today. It's called communion, where we take a cup. And it's not actually wine. We use grape juice, but it's supposed to be wine. And Jesus said, take this, drink this in remembrance of me. This is my blood that was shed for you. But the way of the world is to take good things and distort them into destructive things. To twist those things by using our disordered desires and deceptive ideas that are normalized in a sinful society. This is a a quote from Klein Snodgrass. Yes, that's his real name, unfortunately. But he is a commentary, wrote the NIV application commentary for Ephesians. He said this, We must distinguish the world that God created from the world that human beings subvert to their own purposes. The former leads to the worship of God, and the latter leads to the wrath of God. That God created a world that is supposed to be used for his worship. Sex and food and money, all of these things can be used to worship the Lord. Can be used in a healthy marriage. God created sex in the context of a healthy marriage where a man and a woman could come together. And in Ephesians 5, we're going to get to this in a few months, Paul talks about how the physical marriage, the earthly marriage, is really a micro picture of how God loves the church. He says, for husbands to love your wives as God, as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her, and wives submit to your husbands. We're going to unpack all this in a few months. But, but sex was originally designed to help God procreate, to, to be partners with God in creation, but also to bring intimacy between a, a husband and a wife and to bring them closer Together and in a relationship with God, it was an act of worship, but the devil comes and he distorts it and he uses it for his will. And it's what we see all throughout our world today. We've identified the three enemies of our souls, the devil, the flesh, and the world that Paul talks about in the first three verses. But now let's hear what Paul says next. Are you ready for some good news? This is who you once were. You once followed the prince of, of power of the air, you were, fought, you were led by your fleshly desires. You followed the course of this world. But then he says in verse 4, but God. Somebody turn to somebody and say, but God. But God, being rich in mercy. Being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Can you you hear how much God loves you? Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's talk about grace. Grace is unmerited favor of God. It is the completely undeserved, loving commitment of God to us. And it's rooted in the very nature of God. The initiative lies only and completely with him. The world loves the idea of grace, don't we? But if we 
but but if if grace was measured according to the world standards, it would be considered very scandalous. Let me give you an example. Imagine one of my kids stole something from a store in town. Every person with a sense of justice in this room would say, Pastor, you need to punish that kid. You need to spank that kid. They, they need to know that they can't do that. You need to come down with the hammer, Pastor. Your kid can't steal stuff. That's, that's not right. Now, an act of mercy would be if I decided to withhold punishment from them. They deserve punishment, but I decide not to give it to them. That would be an act of mer- mercy. But an act of grace would be if I myself went to the store and paid for what they stole, and then I took them out for ice cream immediately afterwards. What? You would do what, Pastor? You, they steal something? Not only don't you punish them, but you go and you pay for what they stole, and then you bless them afterwards? Are you kidding me? Pastor, that is unfair. You are not a good father. It is scandalous, right? Come on, all of you would be thinking that if I did that. They deserve punishment. Instead, you gave them ice cream. I told you it's scandalous. But here's the reality, church. God himself, in the form of Jesus, paid the ultimate price for your sin. You deserve death on the cross. Your sin deserved death on the cross. Not only did God not give you death, but he paid for it himself. Your past, your present, and your future sins, he paid for it all. Not only that, he blessed you. And he gave you the Holy Spirit. And he brought you into the most remarkable relationship with the creator of the universe. He spared you from death. He paid the price himself. And he says, instead of giving them death, I'm going to give them the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give them blessing upon blessing. I'm going to shower them with my love. I'm going to give them gifts. I'm going to give them prophecy and encouragement and faith and, and, and generosity. And I'm, I'm going to just shower them with my blessings, with my gifts. It's scandalous. Thank God we don't measure grace according to our scales, right? You didn't do anything to deserve it, but Jesus died for you while you were still his enemy. Let's talk about faith. Paul mentions faith and grace a lot in these verses. Notice that Paul doesn't say that we are saved by faith. You are not saved by faith. We are saved by grace, and it is faith that is the means by which you receive the grace of God. It is the vehicle that helps you receive the grace of God. Many people have made faith about themselves. We say, I have faith. And for most people, faith is only a mental ascent, right? But it's so much more than that. According to Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, faith isn't about you. Faith is not about you. Whether or not you can conjure enough faith to believe. I want us to talk about two things this morning to really get these things in our head when we talk about faith. That Jesus and his disciples saw faith very much through the lens of relationship and covenant. Faith is relational and it's covenantal. Faith describes reliance on a reliable God and believing in his commitment to you. It is relational and covenantal. To say, I have faith, doesn't say anything about you. It says, God is a trustworthy God. When you say, I have faith, what you're really saying is, God is a trustworthy God. He loves me, he's committed to me, and he is true to his word. 
Faith has an adhesive quality to it. It binds the believer to the one who is believed. And this means that our faith is not so much about how much we have, but who we have our faith in. Does Jesus talk about the amount of faith that people have in the Bible? Absolutely he does. When he looks at the centurion soldier and he says, Man, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. You have great faith. He looks at other people and says, where's your faith? Why are you doubting? But it's not so much how much you have, how much faith you have, but it's who you are trusting. Did you know that fear is faith in the wrong thing? Fear is faith in the wrong thing. It's trusting that something is more reliable than God. That this thing that's coming against you is going to overtake you. We begin to fear because we believe that it's going to overtake us and it's putting our trust in that thing instead of God. Fear is faith in the wrong thing. Let me give you an example of this. How many of you have ever had a chair break beneath you? Come on. I was at uh, my former pastor's house. He's one of my best friends. And we were over there for dinner. And we're out on the back deck. And he's got a bunch of plastic chairs. And I go to sit down and crunch, fall right on my bum. And it was like God was saying, it's time to get back to the gym. (laughs) I break his plastic chair. I'm humiliated on the floor. And I get up. And after I I get off the floor, I could have closed my eyes and said with all my might, I have faith that this same chair will hold me. I have faith this chair is going to hold me up. But it will break regardless because the chair itself isn't reliable. I'm putting my faith in the wrong thing. We put our faith in things that break and let us fall. We put our faith in people in money, in substances. But Jesus is the chair that never breaks. In the beginning of our relationship with God, we may be a little hesitant to trust him completely, right? If I had, if this plastic chair just broke underneath me and there's another plastic chair next to it, I'm going to look at that one and go, okay, well, let's see. I might just start, hello, how's it going? I might start by just barely putting a little bit of weight on it. Just barely putting a little weight until I I trust it. I begin to put more weight on it and I begin to sit on it fully. But the more we keep coming back to Jesus, the more we keep coming back to sit on that chair, the more we realize just how completely reliable he is. That he never lets us fall. He is completely trustworthy. And as a result, our faith grows. Our faith is increased It isn't about how much faith you can muster up. It's all about the person in which you trust. So how do we respond to God's grace in our life? How do we we have faith in his grace? What what are the responses that that we're supposed to have when we read about God's grace and we understand how much he loves us? I want to talk about three wrong responses, three wrong reactions to grace, and then two proper responses to grace. The first wrong turn that we can make, and maybe you don't make this right away. Maybe this sneaks in over the years, the more you follow Jesus. But the first wrong response we can have is pride. We can be, we we, we have to be careful not to allow our privileges in Christ to turn into pride. And after following Jesus for a time, we can easily begin to develop disdain for people who don't yet know the truth, and we judge them according to our own standards. Just like that example of my my kid who stole something. How could you bless them? 
when they deserve punishment. Listen, if we look at somebody's sin in their life and say, how can God forgive that? How can, how can, they be, how can God bless them? And they, they didn't do anything to deserve it. We forget that we didn't do anything to deserve our grace as well. We develop a pride. We have to always remember that we were once all far from God. And he was patient and kind to us. We didn't deserve his grace either. But you're no better than anyone else. Because you trust Jesus now. You only sin differently. Your sin looks a little differently now. You, you along with everyone else, still need the grace of God. The second wrong turn. The first one's pride. The second one is escapism. Some people experience grace and they think they should have nothing more to do with this world. I have the truth. I have my ticket to heaven. And now it's time for me to wait it out for Jesus' return. And so they avoid friendships outside of the church. And they place themselves in protective bubbles. And they keep themselves in churchy environments. And they escape from the world around them. Have you heard the saying, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. You've been made a new creation so that you can impact the world around you. Now, we aren't supposed to escape after knowing the truth. It's not our golden ticket. Paul goes on to talk about how that we are his workmanship created to do good works. That we're supposed to be in the world. And we're supposed to be in the world, not of the world, sharing with the world the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. The third wrong turn that we can take is perfectionism. Now, I don't know about you, but this is one that I particularly struggle with, church. And maybe you would, maybe you would identify with me in this area, but uh, we would, maybe you would ask, you, you'd, you'd read these passages that Paul just, that we just read from Ephesians, and you might say, if I have been exalted with Christ, shouldn't I be free from sin? If I'm not dead but have been resurrected and I no longer follow the devil, the flesh, and the world, shouldn't it be impossible for me to sin now? And if you've ever thought about this, tell me how it's going. How you doing? How's your sin life? How's that perfection going? We have to have a balance in this. We have to understand that we still live in two worlds, two realities. Some people think that sin is just a necessary part of life. That, oh, I'm just human. I'm going to fall short because I sin. But don't, don't hear that, okay? I am not saying that. And Paul wasn't saying that. Paul was optimistic, and he had full confidence that believers could live godly lives. He, he, he wrote, be perfect, therefore, because your heavenly Father is perfect. Maybe that was James who wrote that. However, Paul did not expect perfection. Until Jesus returns, we live in two kingdoms that are overlapping. We live in the now, but not yet. Right? Jesus has come. He set you free from sin and death. He's empowered you with the Holy Spirit to stand strong against your flesh, against the ways of the world, to, to, to kick back the devil, right? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Paul recognizes that we aren't supposed to live in perfection. We don't expect perfection, but he was optimistic that we could live godly lives. And as we grow in Christ, we learn how to walk in his ways. This is what the Bible calls the process of sanctification. That you have been, and this is the two worlds that we see, you have been justified. You are seated in heavenly places with Christ, as we've talked about already from Ephesians, right? You've been justified. That is a fancy word, meaning 
uh, when God looks at you, it's just as if I'd never sinned. It's a good way to remember it. When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus over your life. You've been justified. You are in right standing with God. He has seated with He has seated you with Christ in heavenly places. You have been justified, but you are also in the process of being sanctified. Meaning that throughout our lives, we will be on this walk as we learn to look like Jesus, as we learn to model our lives after Jesus, to hear the Spirit's voice like Jesus did, to to ask the Father what he's doing, to do the things that we saw Jesus did, to pray for people like Jesus did. We are in a process of sanctification. And so we have to hold these things in tension. That God does not expect perfection. There's grace for when we fall. But he does want to make you perfect and complete. Lacking nothing. What does the Bible say about how to become perfect and complete? Lacking nothing. (laughs) Through trials. And as we endure trial, we develop steadfastness, right? And steadfastness eventually will lead to becoming perfect and complete. God is in a process of making you look more and more like Jesus. Justification and sanctification. So those are three wrong turns. We have to avoid pride. That we've been given grace, but, but we're no better now than anybody else. Right? We were once, we, we, we still are in need of God's grace. We never leave that place. We have to avoid escapism. That God wants you in the world, but not of the world. He wants you to use the grace that you've been given to show people the love of Jesus. And we have to avoid perfectionism. Knowing that God's grace is going to catch us when we fall, but he still wants to make us mature and complete, lacking nothing. So what are the correct responses to God's grace? The first thing that we have to do is we have to worship him. We worship him. We say thank you. We have gratitude. The first correct response is worship and gratitude. Worship should always be the first response to God's amazing grace. And as believers, we always have something to be grateful for. And we need to remind ourselves to worship God for what he has accomplished on our behalf. To never stop saying thank you. Those days where we gripe and we we complain, we grumble like the Israelites did in the wilderness. God pours his blessings on them. Water pours from the rock. He sends manna from heaven. He delivers them from Egypt. They walk through the Red Sea and they're in the desert grumbling. I want to go back to Egypt. At least we had food there. They grumble, they grumble, and they forget (laughs) they have been saved. They've been delivered out of Egypt. They're headed to the promised land. They forget about it. We can never forget about what God has done for us. We stop every moment we think about it and we say, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you that I'm saved. I don't have anything to complain about. You've got my back. I'm yours. You love me. The second correct response is good works. Good works. For Paul, grace is a power that put him to work. Grace is a power that put Paul to work. And there's negative connotations associated with the word works in much of what Paul wrote. Paul did not like the word works. When you read the Bible, you see works. It's oftentimes used in a negative way that you are not saved by your own works because he was a Pharisee. He understood what that was like. He he remembers what it was like to live by works. 
to follow the law to the T and to judge others. He remembers what a life of works was like, and he has very much, he has a lot of negative connotations with that word. But when talking about works, he usually, um, when, he, when talking about works that bring us closer to God, he refers to it as good works. He uses the word good in there to separate the two ideas. Salvation doesn't come from good works, but it is for good works. Salvation does not come from your good works, but you were saved to do good works. You can't separate the two. Ultimately, God has blessed you with his grace so that you can share it with others. And I'm going to invite my wife to come up. We're going to close in a song in a moment, but as we do, I want to remind us that a faith that isn't worth sharing is no faith at all. That we have a faith that is worth sharing. We believe in a grace that is worth sharing with others. James chapter 2 verse 26 says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You were saved to do good works. And a correct response to God's grace is to say, thank you. And it's what we're going to do in just a minute. We're going to stand together and we're going to say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. And remember that his grace is a power that puts you to work. To do good works. To share the love of Jesus with those who need it. To put your pride aside. And instead of looking at people with eyes of judgment, eyes of contempt, we look at them as people who are in desperate need to experience the grace of the Father, just as you experienced it. Because we were all once following the course of this world. We were all once following the prince and power of the air. We were all once being driven by our passions and our desires and our bodies and minds. But God, in his grace, he saved us through the blood of Jesus. He paid the price. Not only did he spare us from death, but he blessed us with all spiritual blessings. He seated us in heavenly places with Christ. Would you stand with me? Just begin to say thank you to Jesus. Lift up your own words right now and say, Jesus, thank you so much for what you've done.